Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Terry Lynn Martin and her husband moved to the Lance area nearly 22 years ago and have no desire to live anywhere else, in spite of the 250-plus inches of snowfall each winter. Terry is currently a regular contributor to UP Magazine, Porcupine Press, where she finds an outlet for her humorous stories. Anthologies of these stories can be found in her books, Church Lady Chronicles, Devilish Encounters, 2021, and High on the Vine, 2022. Her full-length novel, Moose Willow Mystery, A Youper Romance, was just released. Welcome, everyone. This is Evelyn coming from, and Mom, coming from <laughs> Library. And tonight's speaker, Terry, is going to be talking to us about The Home Wind, which if you haven't read it, you are really missing out. Um, as always, I usually hand it over now to Victor to speak a little bit about any UPA events or happenings that we need to be aware of. Thanks, Evelyn. Uh, we can now start talking about the uh, our spring conference, which will be taking place on June 10th in Marquette, Michigan at the lovely historic uh, Peter White Library. And uh, we have a, a, an exciting keynote speaker, uh, Marty Ackett, who is a two-time uh, Poet Laureate of the UP, and he's going to be bringing on a musical guest or two. So he's really going to uh, kick it off with a, a lively show. And then we have six breakout speakers. Uh, well, some of the subjects include uh, using humor in your writing, and Terry Martin will be hosting that. Uh, we'll have our self-publishing 101 for anyone who's ever wanted to publish a book by themselves. Uh, Tyler Tischler will be running that. He's eminently qualified. And Brandy Thomas will be on uh, explaining how to work with an audiobook engineer, how to record your own audiobook. That's really exciting stuff. Uh, she's recorded five or six books for me. She's amazing. We'll have Carrie Pearson on uh, how to work with an illustrator if you're putting together a children's book. And we have another uh, woman, uh, Laura Smith, on cover design. Another important feature, right? Everyone knows you. People judge your book by your cover, so you better get a good one. And uh, we're really excited to have uh, three different panelists uh, talking about how authors can work with bookstores from three different people from around the UP. So it'll be an exciting lineup. And the conference uh, registration is free if you become a member at uppaa.org. Just go to our website, click on join, pay the $40, and you get all the benefits, including conference with lunch. So that's my pitch. Well, that's great. And um, how did the Dandelion Short Story Contest end up? Can you tell us anything yet, or you're still reading and judging? Uh, the judging is going to go on till the 21st. We got uh, something like 26 high school stories and about 12 from the junior high. And the, the quality is really high. I'm, I'm judging all of them. I'm torn as to which one are the best. Uh, uh, the, these kids are so good at writing uh, out and out fantasy. That's where they really excel, uh, like science fiction or uh, sort of uh, medieval Renaissance time period and, and, and also just fantastical things that happen. So it'll be a treat. Good. Yeah, I always look, I'm always glad that you guys do that and sponsor that. It's great to get you know, young people writing and it's always good to be with a lot of fellow writers or I shouldn't say I'm not a writer, but with all of you writers here tonight. So um, for those of you just getting on, I don't have the book yet, but this is our book for next month here. So we're starting year four. And we've got the lineup kind of figured out for a while. This first book is called We Kept Our Towns Going by Phyllis Michael Wong. In my email tomorrow, I'm going to send you the names of all the books, the publishers, where you can get the books. Because some of the books this year are a little bit tricky to get. So I will give you all that information tomorrow. Um, so you'll be all set for year four lineup, which is pretty exciting. And speaking about covers, I think four, four or five of, no, yeah, four of the covers are bright red. So I don't know what that means because I was putting out my display today for like it says in the chat, we are going to be on TV tonight, um, channel um, WZM, channel 19 is going to be doing, did a spot today with me about our book club. So I put that in the chat, their, their URL, so you can click on that. 
And I noticed we have a lot of red covers. But anyway, without any further ado, <laughs> I, I'm so delighted that the Terry wrote this book because, wow, it just, it's like, started off with a bang and I, I didn't want to put it down. And I, I don't say that lightly, Terry. I taught English for 20, 24 years before becoming a library director. And I read even 60 books last year alone. This, this was a great book. I just loved it. Did I don't know those of you out there listening? Did a lot of you feel the same way who read it? It, it just I don't know. I, tell we want to talk to you. Tell us the story. <laughs> How does somebody write a book about a logging camp long ago with the with the white boy and his Native American friend? I, I I'm I, I'm an inquiring mind. I want to know, Terry. Well, um, thank you, Evelyn. And can everybody hear me? I'm not going to. Yes. Okay. All right. So, need. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think something that a lot of us know is that you still have to research fiction, and um, I'm not sure I'm seeing. I'm not seeing myself. Is that normal? I'm seeing Hilton. Well, if you click in your right-hand corner. There should be a button that says view. I mean, am I supposed to be on the main screen when I'm talking? Um, if you want to be. I, I don't. I just want to make sure people can hear me. I don't care. <laughs> I got nothing to show until I get to the PowerPoint. We can hear you and we can see you. But there is okay. a button in your right-hand corner. It'll look like a little, like a movie clapboard. It's called view. And on there, you can see if you want the speaker view, which will show you large, and then all of us as little heads on the top, or oh, gallery, I which I call the Brady Bunch button, where we all look like we're on the Brady Bunch. Those are a couple choices that you have. And then there's immersive. I don't really know. I don't know what that is. Oh, so I click. It says speaker. Yep. Click Sorry, on speaker. Click. You should see you as the main box. Do I click full screen? I'm on full screen. Oh, well, let's not let's not worry about it. Okay. As long as people can hear me, that's fine. We can hear you and see you. Okay. So this book, as I, I told Evelyn, this sat metaphorically in a drawer for um, quite a long while. I started out um, with a critique or writers group way back um, many decades ago, and published my first book uh, called A Family Trait through the help of an accomplished uh, Newberry winner who happened to be in our group. Um, she got an editor to read it and they bought it. So that was published in 1999. So they were interested in other books. So I I think when I went to Hartwick Pines, uh, they have a reconstructed logging camp there. And it, it kind of piqued my interest. So I was, this was back before you could Google things. I went to the library and started looking at things and researching what life was like. And being into writing children's book at that time, I was, um, can you still hear me? My screen got weird. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> Holiday House, who did the first book, was interested in a second book. Unfortunately, long story short, the editor left. They kind of strung me along for a year and then finally rejected it. Um, so I, I worked I, uh, at Finlandia University and different things and took this book back out when I decided to self-publish it. Re rewrote it many times. It went through many format changes. And part of the reason I, I chose writing a book about this, these two boys and their cultural differences and how they help each other with the difficulties in life was because there was discussion. There aren't a lot of books for boys at that age. So many are geared for girls, they're the readers. So that's where the money is, I guess. And so that was part of my motivation is to make something that, that a 10-year-old boy or 11-year-old boy or nine-year-old boy would wanna pick up and feel, this is a cool book you know, for me to read about. And you know, so that's kind of how it came about. Um, I had, a few trips to Hartwick Pines and got some information there and, and worked on this book. Um, I, 
it, I have to say it was in the works like 20 years ago. And it used to be self-publishing, the cost was prohibitive. It became more affordable. Um, so I did it. I worked with a professional book designer, but I didn't have a professional editor and it was really a struggle. I mean, you have a friend read it, you know, and I've, there's a couple errors in it, but it's pretty clean. But then all these cartons of books, you still have to order quite a few, all these cartons of books arrive and there's still quite a few sitting in the closet. So um, I've had a few self-published books. I now have um, a publisher and print on demand. And I think that's been very helpful for probably a lot of us from an investment standpoint. But um, I, you know, this, I really enjoyed writing this book. Um, I did, I, I don't propose to be an expert on the Ojibwe Indians, but I have some peripheral knowledge. I live in, you know, basically the Keweenaw Bay Indian communities right here. I've had some contact um, at the university um, with people there and different things, but um, mainly researched. I, I went to good old fashioned libraries before you could Google stuff and checked out books and read memoirs and journals and articles. And, um, you know, great, great. There's like, if you read the book, there is some historical truth in it with like say the town of Sini was quite a town in its day and other things are pretty fictitious but um, border border along historical accuracy but it's not a history book on the UP you know that everything the logging industry up here um, as probably everybody realizes um, that era this book was written to take place the 1870s, um, it was pretty devastating to the landscape, the way logging was done and um, decimated the environment and um, displaced the, in, the Native Americans in the area. Um, and so that is part of the theme through the book too, that uh, the boy's father who, um, if for those who haven't read it, I won't do spoiler alerts, but his father had sensed this destruction of the land and sort of, even though he was a logger, sort of he told his son, you know, that this isn't right, I guess. And it, the son kind of carries this. We're kind of hoping throughout the book that, you know, maybe there's some hope with him. And um, anyway, he meets this Native American boy who's basically come from an orphanage and is, penniless, wearing rags, starving, sick, and he gets nursed back to health, but Jamie is amazed at the um, prejudice against the Native American boy and the difficulties. And so, you know, without like giving the book away, because I'm hoping people will read it, um, it, you know, there's, there is a lot of adventure. There is a lot of, um, burdens that these two boys carry at such a young age. And there's a lot of joy too, and friendship and character building. And I think that even though the, the era is many, many years ago, that young people today can still maybe identify with the difficulty in coming of age and not feeling you're a man yet, but you need to be, or in the case of a girl, a, a woman. and um, so anyway, the two help each other through their cultural differences to understand. And um, hopefully people take that away from the book and still enjoy it. Hopefully in the book, hopefully is something that moves forward and that you don't have to plod through. <laughs> and I, I appreciate Evelyn's, you know, saying that she had no trouble. And it, it's about 147 pages, I think. So not too bad. But I... Um, I went, on, now I can go online and get things. And I did set up a PowerPoint with just some things, some photos and things I dug up that kind of represent that time. Um, there's some good photos out there. So if anybody has any questions at this point, otherwise I'll go ahead and start with the PowerPoint. Um, I just like to make the point that you, you mentioned on boy books and girl books. As a retired, as a teacher, before I retired, I always found that 
girls will read books with boy characters, but boys will not read books with girl characters. Yeah. So if you want to appeal to both, you, you got to have boy characters. Yep, that's that was something that I had learned way back. Like I talk about that writers group I was in, it was mainly children's book writers. And 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 we dealt with libraries and booksellers and stuff and took that away. Yes, boys don't want to read about girls babysitting or something like that, that they they had. I think the stereotypes have changed a lot since I wrote the book. I mean, the um, boys and girls can do the same things now. I mean, girls are in sports and when I grew up, uh, not so much, you know, things like that, but still, um, and I've had adults read this book and say that, that it doesn't have to be a kid's book that, um, it, you know, and of course, especially with a family member, they're going to say it was a great book, but that, that it is a worthwhile. And I've had parents looking young going, well, you have my daughter likes to read. And I'm going, well, what about, you know, I have this book. Oh no, that'll be much too young. She wouldn't want to read it. She's like really into older and like, well, that's too bad because I've had people say that even if you're not 10 or 12, that it's, it's a good read. So. Mm -hmm. I, I have a quick question. This is Sharon. Um, there was probably a lot of prejudice against the Native Americans. So what made the white boy, and I'm sorry, but I haven't read it, but what made the white boy um, become friends with, um, with, with um, what, what did you name him? The well, the, the, the white boy's name is Jamie and the Native American boy's name is Grayfeather. And uh, basically Grayfeather took refuge in the stable of the logging camp and they, uh, Jamie came upon him. And first, of course, uh, they tussled um, because it, you know Jamie felt threatened and then realized the boy was very sick. Jamie's mother nurses him back to health. They become good friends and they share stories and, and information. And so they were kind of forced together and then, then they bonded. I mean, it was the only other young person in the logging camp um, I mean, it'd be hard to even, it was very unusual. This book, his mother becomes the camp cook. That's very unusual, but it wasn't completely unheard of. Mm -hmm. And I think it wasn't totally unusual to have, have kids there, um, but it, mainly it was men. And so, it, but that is pointed out in the book. I was always told if you do something that's not the norm just point at it and say we know this isn't the norm this is my book though and this is what's happening so <laughs> no, no, that makes sense and don't don't you know let the reader know i know it's not normal to have a woman but and they weren't sure about it but they were desperate and so hmm. they took her on so that makes sense strange yeah. bedfellows right thank you Sherry. Terry, okay Terry. Oh, i'm sorry terry i was just going to add i never found that i needed to plod through the book and and I would better describe it as it's a family book um, because I have found that I wanted to share it with my grandkids and my adult children um, because there's a lot of issues in that book that are current today, um, even though they're old timey. Um, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. Yeah, I and I as I mentioned to Evelyn, I put a discussion guide in the back with kind of the hopes that that it might be used for educational, you know, as, as a class read, that kind of thing. I haven't really had any teachers approach me um, and say, can I get a discount to get some books? You know, I would gladly do that. Um, but I and I have read to class, I actually read this book to some, some seventh and eighth graders, some excerpts before it became a book, just from the manuscript. And the kids really liked it. You've got to publish this, a great book. Mm -hmm. And they weren't really saying that. Eighth graders don't say nice things <laughs> if they don't have to. <laughs> this was a tough class. So, um, you know, that was encouraging. And that was many years before I finally got it done. But how, well, how, did, how, did, how did you um, find a reception from other Indian tribes? Um, or, or have you experienced... Uh, either support or 
or the opposite? I have not had it vetted, so to speak, by uh, the Ojibwa. Um, and I haven't really gotten any feedback. Um, I do have a few people I know. I don't know if they've read the book. So I haven't heard any negative comments, but I, I can't really say for certain. I can't say for certain that any um, Native Americans in this area have bought the book and read it. Um, it's in the library. Um, I, I think um, I've offered it to the Ojibwe Library. Um, so, you know, the, they might dispute some of it, but I think that, I think it's, I don't think there's anything offensive and, um, or terribly inaccurate. Um, and so, you know, I haven't really had a problem with people challenging that aspect of it. That's good. Yeah, That's very so far so so far so good, you know. And and I you know, I'd welcome that. I you know, um but I never really I didn't really know if it was appropriate to like go, could you read this and tell me what you think of it, you know, because you're Native American tell me. You know, I just tried to glean correct information and of course it is fiction. Um so you take a little license there, but uh, anyway, thank you. Yeah, so maybe we can go to this PowerPoint if everybody's good with that. Um, so I have to, I've been tutored in this now. Share screen. Okay, ever, can everybody see that? Yes, Perfect. yes. Great. Now, am I going to be able to move the slides? Yep, you should. Okay, there we go. Use All right. Network arrow keys on your keyboard yeah page, page i got i got the key the arrows down here so i'm good so there's a picture of my book duh you know mm -hmm. um which i just copied and pasted that victor <laughs> <laughs> i hope that's okay <laughs> so here's a picture of a forest um it's not exactly probably the way things look when the loggers came but um i think this might be from harwick pines i'm not real sure and then can people see that at the top, mm -hmm. the cutoff? No. Oh, okay. Because um, I'm, I'm cut off on the top here. Probably because I'm showing it. Anyway, um, the, basically the Ojibwe or the part of the Anishinaabe uh, tribe, um, which means first or original people. And there's, there's three um, basic um, aspects to the Anishinaabe, the Ojibwa, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi. Um, this was something I had just come across in doing after book research, the word Ojibwa. I never saw that before, but I do mention in the book that Ojibwa refers to the pucker and mac moccasins, but it has the sort of metaphoric for something else, I think. Um, but the, the, Anishinaabe were basically um, hunters and gatherers, and maple syrup collection was apparently a very big deal back before logging really moved in on them. Um, I've I've looked at that several places, and it was something that kind of continued even though they lost a lot of their land. Um, they were able to still do that for kind of a cash crop. Um, they, like I say, they were hunters and gatherers. Um, I, I don't think this is a really circa 1870 picture. I think it's kind of a recreation, but it, I believe that looks like a real canoe, birch bark canoe. Um, this is some, some gathering rice. They still do this. Um, I think that only the Ojibwe tribe around is allowed to do that around here. Um, during the year 1860 to 80, over a million board feet of timber with a minimum value of 36 million were stolen from Indian reservations. They kind of, sometimes they just out and out logged over land on the reservation. Sometimes they tried to get the Native Americans to become farmers and cut, cut all the trees down, you know, plow up the land. It, it wasn't terribly successful. Um, it was, they basically were were sent away to like a this looks like a fairly 
poor camp here. They're living in rags. They don't have fancy clothes or anything like that. Um, and, the, and it's sort of where Jamie came, or where uh, Greyfeather, the character of the book, came from. Um, from there were missionaries too, and he came from a, a Catholic um, shelter, I guess you could say. And this is an old picture of a logging camp. And as you can see, like they used horses, they just basically used used them in teams of two. You can see uh, this is quite a large one with quite a few buildings. Um, so where they've loaded them on sleds here. I can't tell if that's a train or what, which my book doesn't involve moving them by rail, involves moving logs by, by river. A picture of a logging camp crew, pretty motley. <laughs> and uh, my book, I, I don't have like 100 men at this logging camp. It's more like 30. It was just more manageable because having Jamie's mother, the cook, and him, the helper, there's no way you could you could handle that many um, people. You can see the three cooks right here. Can you see my cursor? No. Yeah. Oh, you can't. Okay, all over to the left, the three in the white um, apron. Oh, okay. Oh. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I can see it now. Okay, thank you. And this is from Hartwick Pines. Um, I mentioned it's a, a state park in Grayling, Michigan, downstate. And it's just a replica of a dining hall. And it's probably much nicer than what reality was, but it gives you an idea of the crudeness of uh, the Spartan existence of the people in this. Here's a real dining hall. And, and um, it says the real king of the camp was the cook. And in my book, it was the queen. And people were very, very respectful of her. Nobody gave her any trouble. Um, they gave her some trouble, but, and up to 100 men. I, it's not just unbelievable to be able to do that three meals a day. Again, from Hartwick Pines, a, a reconstructed kind of kitchen what they had to work with it. It's quite impressive if you guys ever get that way, or maybe a lot of you've already been to it. I've been many times, I really love it there. This is a bunkhouse. You can see that instead of Lazy Boy recliners, they have a wooden bench to relax on at night, tell stories, smoke their pipes, um, and sleep in those bunk beds. Um, there's rarely any windows even in these bunkhouses. It's in they it has to have to be a little rank in there too. And they talk about here, you know, how to they cut all these trees down. Obviously they didn't have chainsaws in those days or the harvesting machines we see out in the woods today. They notched it just like if we cut down a tree, if you're a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, like I was, you notched one side with a ax and then you took the saw on the other side. And if you were lucky, it fell where the wedge was and didn't fall on anybody. Um, they did that all day long. This picture, uh, this is from Michigan Tech Archives. I'm wondering how you would ever get that tree out of the woods. We that it's an amazingly gigantic tree. Um, when they weren't moving things with in the winter, or if the snow wasn't real deep, they would haul out logs. They would hang from a sling on, under these large wheels with clear stumps, and they would pull the logs out with a team of horses. Um, in the winter, they loaded them on sleds. Um, I forget what this is, a cross haul, I think. Um, so this is sort of, again, um, replicating at Harwick Pines, replicating, you know, the, how it was done. These are all authentic instruments that were, um, you know, rebuilt and um, restored. 
This is a real life thing, loading them on the sled out in the woods. I don't see the cross hall, but. And in the winter, they use this to ice the roads. So again, in the book, they'll talk about this a little bit, icing the road, um, <clears throat> put the water in the trough there and it sprinkle, they call it a sprinkler, I think. Um, other times they roll the snow with this to flatten it so they can move those big sleds to stack the logs next to the river ready for spring. That's just a scene of kind of what it looks like after they've cut down all the big trees. That's, those are pretty good sized logs there. And this was a quote from a story. Logs were loaded on the sleds by means of a cross haul. A team pulled each log up parallel skids <clears throat> onto the sled. Two men with cant hooks or PV sticks, I think they're the same thing, controlled the position of the log as it mounted the skid. And another man called the top loader put each log in place on the load. Inasmuch as the logs weighed from a half ton to two tons each, it was no mean feat. Hmm. And probably people have seen this picture. I mean, that's amazing to me. <laughs> Two horses oh. could pull that. I think these typically aren't they don't typically stack them that high. It was maybe for a for a photo op, but obviously they could. And that's the the cant hook we're talking about when they how they get them up there. I don't know how they did it. And obviously there was a lot of accidents and injuries and it wasn't, if you broke your leg, you were probably not going to survive. Then they got things to the river. This is a lot of logs in the river um, and they, they jam and they had to break them loose. And those who've read the book know that is what started the whole book out. And then after decades of logging, um, I can't see the whole screen, but Michigan was littered with thousands of hectares of slash dead branches, leaves and wood. In their haste to move the tent to new cutting sites, loggers usually gave little thought to what they were leaving behind. By the 1870s, stumps and branches already littered much of Northern Michigan. There was no longer any barrier for erosion on cutover land and the dry debris created enormous fire hazards. Again, if those who've read the book know what happens when you have a drought and a, a wind and all of this stuff. I live in the woods. I worry a lot when it's dry up here. In 1871, 50,000 acres burned in Menominee County. Um, mm -hmm. I bought her book about the different fires in Michigan. There's a lot of them. Um, and this is kind of, my book takes place, part of it, the second part of it does, does take place in this um, county and refers kind of back to this fire. And so I just did a before and after. And I still see with the, what I have on the right with the clear cut, they do that still. <laughs> they don't leave a green corridor or anything along the road and, and leave all the brush behind. So, I mean, there may be people who make their living off logging and that's fine. I mean, you, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I do worry about fire. I've had a few. And then I just threw this in, in case I ever do a school presentation, only you can have forest fires. So that's it. Stop share. So does anybody have any more questions? Where can we get your book, Terry? Um, well, it's available on Amazon by with Kindle or paperback. Um, or if you want paperback from me, just let me know and I can send you one. It'll be cheaper for you that way a little bit unless you like kindle and barnes okay. and noble um it's also there on um just on nook i think yes so, yeah and other um there's other uh, e-book availabilities pretty much all the platforms i think are on thank you 
That was really interesting, um, Terry. And I wonder, like, um, I know that uh, my dad has a picture of some of his uh, kinfolk that uh, did some did some clear cutting up on the western end, and it shows uh, like what you saw there with the 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 stack of logs, and they must have had some kind of a pulley system to get it up because I think a lot of them it wasn't just just for the just for the photo shoot so to speak. But I think that they they really did pile them quite high. Um, if they didn't have a log run, you know, to put them down like they do in Grand Marais, you're probably familiar with you know with that old log run that they have there. Yeah, I mean they moved them in different ways depending. Um, sometimes they built slides and chutes, um, got them down steep hills um, or into the river. Um, but yeah, getting them up on that sled like that, I I don't know how if they couldn't have just used a uh, PV stick to get them up there. They weighed tons, you'd have to counterbalance it. But you know, my book doesn't go into huge detail um, about logging, it just touches upon it. And um, so it's, you know, I, I just yeah, didn't want to distract too much from the, the this the movement of the story and get too hung up on explaining things because it's a kid's book um but it is an interesting thing now it's all done with machine but back in mm -hmm. that day it took a lot of a lot of muscle so. it almost looked like ropes um on the one where where you know the men were standing up there um it's just fascinating what what these men could do i, I don't even so know I how think you that's, uh, that that was intriguing when you were showing because these, these those photographs are just they're beautiful. Terry, yeah, that, my husband found a really good website with um, literally hundreds of photos, and um, so I spent hours going through them because I didn't think you guys wanted to see ninety five slides. So. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. I don't know if you could see us over here, but anyways, as you were showing that picture. Um, a patron in our library came over and he was kind of interested in the book and what we were talking about. And he says he knows how they get those logs up there. Okay. Tell him. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us. Well, that pile was definitely for show. Uh, but the, the normal piles, they'd have horses and they'd take a rope, they'd take two ropes and they would run it down and they'd have poles laying, they would have po two poles laying on the log pile and they'd have a rope that went there and back. So as the horse pulled the rope, it was a double rope. So the rope went underneath the log and back up over the top. So when the horses pulled, it rolled up. Yeah. It rolled the logs up on. The guys are really ingenious with the way they they figured things out. And that, that was one way of loading. And then they used the tripod also with the pulley where they could just pick up the log and swing it onto the blade. Yeah. But uh, a great book for anyone to read would be John Nelligan. Oh, no offense against your book, but this is more of an adult book. Have you ever heard of a White Pine Empire? No. It's uh, Bernie Hoffman was a library librarian and yeah. uh, he had like, library cards in three different libraries and he wrote a book about the history of crystal falls and he said some books are read and some are digested he said this is the latter he says this and for a librarian to say that that meant a lot to me so i read the book and john nelligan started out as a cook in the logging camps when he was 12 years old his father got oh. killed. and he worked his way up to uh being a a, a big right through the ranks to where he was at the top he would buy millions of board feet of timber and, and send it down the river and he was a he was a good looking he was a six foot four irish mini he didn't drink like most lumberjacks <laughs> did he was just kept his nose to the grindstone but he, a really interesting book a white pine empire so i put it i'm going to put it in the chat so i'm going to just ask him if i got it right white pine empire by john e-l-g-i-n don um Nelligen. Okay, we're gonna get this right there's for everybody. An there's an Elgin Creek in in this Iron County named after him. N E L L I G A N, I believe. Don Nelligan. John. 
John. John. Now I got John. I got to put John. Okay. And I'll send this to everybody and we can look up this book. You got, yeah, you wouldn't be disappointed to read that we, book. He says it will like it. Okay. There it, it tell, is. It tells you all about the, uh, like the log drives. Death was just a common thing that happened. He said, when a man died, you, your, your, your eyes wetted, his quote, your eyes wetted, you, you bit your teeth and you just stepped a little more carefully, but nothing could stop the log drive. It had to go on. You could not stop the drive for the men because so they do what they could to cover a man if they could, but there were many men that never were recovered or much later. And I'm sure after being crushed by the logs, there probably wasn't it was an underwater cremation, really, if you really think about it, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the people. But it, yeah, I mean, it was a really, really good It book. started, yeah, it started, he was an Irishman. He was born in the uh, 1840-ish time period. So he, he was right through the prime of all of the the logging days. Well, good. And he it's, he, he was right in this area too. It's right, I'm, we're in Iron County, Crystal mm -hmm. Falls, but he, he ran like the fence river mm -hmm. he that's where he talks about the man getting killed up there and it's really really good okay so. well we put it in the chat and hopefully some people can check that out if they're interested in more <laughs> logging camp adventures <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, thank you for your help yeah, hi terry this is maria california and when you visit and uh classroom what kind of questions and response are you getting from your students well, I, I've only, I, I visited a couple classrooms. Like I said, I knew a teacher, um, seventh, eighth grade teacher, and I went to her classroom a few times. And um, I don't know that they, I got a lot of questions about the logging or this or that because they didn't read the whole book. Sure. Um, but they were, I would question them and say, do you feel like Jamie is prejudiced against oh. Grayfeather? Um, no, no, they say, and well, why not? You know, um, you know, that we would, I would sort of open discussion about that. Um, it's, that's not, it's been a few years. I, I'd be real interested how it would go today. Um, yeah, they, but I don't kind of relate to their yeah. own relationship with others. Yeah. So, you know, to me, you know, you can lecture and tell them, this is good, this is bad, but it's it's kind of good to just tell it in a story and sure. see what they extract from it and um, discuss it. And I think I would ask them, can you think of something that's happened with you? It doesn't have to be mm -hmm. race or this or that, just something that's happened to you that made you feel that way, you know? So I think the, good, the book is good for that type of um, classroom discussion, you know, that kind Thank of thinking. You. Thank you. But thanks for that. Yeah, I'd like to get into more classrooms. And, um, you know, I haven't I haven't had a lot of offers, even though I think people know in my community know it's out there. And I think things are so um, difficult now to go outside their teachings. Um, and I was on the school board at one of the small schools here, and they haven't invited me lately when i was on the school board they would were talking about so i don't know maybe i'm not aggressive enough <laughs> it's all about marketing huh yeah. <laughs> i don't feel bad terry don't feel bad yeah. i mean i live right here in brimley uh, you know i've been a columnist for 10 years okay i've written what three books now uh, and i've never been invited to the school that i graduated from so you know yeah and i don't I, think, you know, I, I don't I don't know, you know. I don't think they appreciate the local the local talent sometimes in the small they, little they just get they get so focused on um you know what they have to accomplish by the end of the day and trying to get through that. And and I know a lot of teachers try really hard to bring other experiences in, but I mean I worked at Finlandia University for 11 years. I brought authors in, I was on the committee. Um some of them fairly you know, well-known authors. We kind of piggyback sometimes with Michigan Tech. I was on the um, campus read committee. I don't, they've never invited me to do a book signing. 
you know, yeah. and I've offered, I mean, I emailed the bookstore and said, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do a book signing there sometime. So yeah. Yeah. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> it's their loss. Yeah. I suppose I could just show up, you know, <laughs> see what happens. Gosh, <laughs> <Our> Bob. <laughs> I don't know. Anybody else? I know. You know, I'm sorry, but in that one picture, I'm going back to the lot. I thought I saw ropes. Okay. And, and, and I thought, oh, Sharon, it's probably just your imagination, but I thought I saw a rope on either end of those logs and what that fellow was talking about. You see what you've started, Terry, yeah. is that you showed us these pictures. <laughs> okay. And, and we want to talk about your book. But your pictures were so interesting about the logging and some of the virgin growth that was cut down that, you know, you got to you got to get us back on track now for your book. Tell well, me about more about your book. Well, the, these are themes throughout the book. You know, the book is really about um, the two boys, their relationship and their their exchange of, um, you know, it's a brutal world uh, that they're living in. and but there is love and there is caring and, but they depend a lot on each other. And the, Jamie, the white boy tends to depend more on gray feather who's become far more worldly through necessity. And because of the nature of perhaps his upbringing, um, they consider him a man at 13 and Jamie's mother doesn't want him to become a man, you know? So you have all those issues that probably are still occurring today. And um, yeah, the, the logging, the environment, um, that kind of thing is the setting, the scene, but it's not a book ab about that. It's just mm -hmm. the setting. Um, so, you know, somebody else? Yep. T Terry, I, I want to say that um, I one of the things I really loved about the book was not just the relationship between the two boys, but that both of these boys have um, very <laughs> maybe dysfunctional relationships with their fathers in different ways. I won't I won't give away too much the plot, but I I loved how how that played out in the book, the relationships with the fathers, and um, and the, the stepfather also that he was actually a very you, you didn't make him into an evil stepfather. I, I loved yeah. that he. <laughs> stepfather and i loved the my my question is i i loved the fire scene i thought you did such a great job with that it was so dramatic and vivid and i won i didn't even know that there had been a fire there in the marinette menominee area i knew about the pashtuba fire but not that one um but my question is how did you decide like to tie these two ends of the upper peninsula together Sini and menominee and where did you like get the idea to to tie all these these parts together well i think from my research back in those days um i think there was a lumber camp in that area i mean you have a logging camp and then you have the lumber mill and once you know you have a choice you can stay with the logging camp and they move around um but they decided to move on with their lives and go to the lumber mill so basically it, it was roughly what was occurring up here um i don't say it's exactly there was a lumber mill exactly and and i think um i talked about going to menominee um and neskanaba and, and different places that are familiar and and the dunlap the steamer that they took was a real um real ship that did transport people and yeah, there was fire in Wisconsin, that fire you mentioned the, starts with a P. Um, and I, I've been doing a little more reading. I wrote this book so long ago, I had to reread it <laughs> recently um, and drag out my notes. And I have things, you know, talking about Sini and I have things talking about this and that that I used originally from the book. Um, but yeah, I just sort of followed the rough history of the area and how and how people followed where the work was um and 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 i saw some pictures i almost used one in the powerpoint of people going to the rivers 
um, trying to escape these fire, all these fires, the Wisconsin and um, Chicago, that was horrible. And apparently a lot of the lumber for the, to replace Chicago came from Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the horses, everything going in the river, trying to survive. And um, so that was you know, something that really occurred. Mm -hmm. That's why I used it. I, I truthfully, and I won't, I won't do a spoiler alert. I truthfully don't know if Pete and Grayfeather would have survived where they went <laughs> in the book. <laughs> Nobody's challenged me on that though. So. I, I'd like to say, Terry, that from a lot of the research that I've done for my own books that uh, I found yours very, very believable. And a lot of the stuff was really accurate, right on target. I didn't see anything that I would have complained about historically. And um, I, it was a real page turner for me and I did pass it on to my grandkids too. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I know Deborah brought up, she, she was one of the reviewers for this book and she brought up that I mentioned the tooth fairy and she thought, no, there could have been back then. And she looked it up and for sure there was, and I'm like, I don't remember if I looked it up, Deborah, or if I just looked out <laughs> on that one. <laughs> so, sometimes we do get lucky. Yeah. I, I had an incident where, with my book, Living on Sisu, where I figured that there was a shortcut uh, across from Sweet Town to the Calumet area because there were shortcuts all over. And I knew a few in the town I grew up in. So I put in a shortcut. And then this guy approached me who actually grew up in Sweet Town and he said, man, I can't believe you even, you even included the shortcut. And I was <laughs> going, phew. <Yay. laughs> yeah, I mean, we've all done it and we've all been caught with oops. And even um, some things get past Simon and Schuster. And um, one of my pet peeves is when people just presume they know something about something. And with some things it's okay, but I had horses for many, many years and they have these horses either galloping for 20 miles um, <laughs> or I remember one that she reached forward and scratched the horse between his ears. I'm like, either that horse had a short neck or she had a very long arm. Because um, <laughs> you like physically would have, <laughs> have trouble doing that sitting from the saddle and leaning forward and um, so yes there there's many pitfalls and and I and this was I mean I was setting myself up a bit but I just I just really felt uh, I was really disappointed that that originally Holiday House bought the first book but finally said with this one and true the editor left that I was working with oh we've we've already got another book similar to that and um but it's new york and they don't you know we all know that there's a reason that we self-publish or use independent publishers because um, we have a lot of good stuff and it's hard to hard to get attention at some places one question over here well I just, I just wanted to say, I, I kind of enjoyed that Sini trip where the boys had to go and get the supplies. Yes. That was, that was a good part of it. And where Jamie started doubting Grayfeather and then he kind of thought, no, I can't doubt him. I know, you know, but it was kind of a moment of, cause he was, he was listening to the adults around him. Right. So that was kind of a meaningful story I think and and even when they got back and they he thought his mom would be mad and she just hugged him and he liked being hugged like it felt good <laughs> and and I think boys you know at that age you know they they may push away a little bit from their mom and then another time it might just feel kind of good to have your mom give you a hug <laughs> so. I don't know for me, nothing beats that beginning scene where he gets that mattress down and it gets it all stuffed <laughs> up there. I mean, that, that, oh, you had me. I was hooked in right after that. That was great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and I was sort of living that because I was going to have him pull this prank. And then I'm like, well, how the heck would that boy get that back up there? 
<laughs> so I kind of paint, I painted myself in a corner there a little bit and mm-hmm. I thought, well, he, he didn't think it through and he didn't get it back up. <laughs> that was great. That was great. And you saw the, the picture on the PowerPoint of the bunks and, oh, yeah. um, you know, so it'd be pretty high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to, but if it's okay, I just wanted to mention, um, I went to a logging museum a number of years ago in uh, Minnesota, and in the bunk beds, they didn't, this particular logging museum didn't have bunk beds, they just had a row of beds, and they were like doubles, and there was a rope going down, so that, you know, each, there would be a man on each side, and they couldn't cross over that rope. So I don't know if you came across any of that in 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 some of your your research. No, I didn't. Um, the, um, the the museum at Hartwick Pines, I think, represented them as you know upper lower bunk. But I would imagine they did. You know, there was no um, no no way that it was done in every place. It was whatever probably worked best, what materials they had, and. You know, this type of logging went on quite a bit beyond when this book was taking place, too, in these rustic, uh, difficult living situation. And but maybe it got a little better with real beds. You know, I don't know. And, I don't know. And it was just kind of funny. And you'd see where they were hanging the, their underwear and whatnot to have it dry, yeah. their socks and stuff. And I'm yeah, glad I, you mentioned uh, you referenced Betty Sodders there, Michigan on Fire. One of her books, Betty was a good friend of mine. She's passed on now. Oh, but okay. She she did a lot of uh, a lot of writing yeah. about. Uh, I Michigan. still have the book. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's good just book. packed full of information. The research, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Well, she lived in the wilds with her husband for thirty years. Really, oh, that's yeah. interesting. I'm glad that you knew her. I. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, small world. Good friend. Yeah, thank you. Somebody else was. I was just going to say there's a good logging museum right in Newberry also. You don't have to go downstate or to Minnesota to go to a logging museum. That's right. That's right. As a matter of fact, my Roger Pylon was a friend of mine from, he lives in Grand Moreno, was instrumental in setting that up. And one of my dad's, uh, one of these great big saws, you know, uh-huh. that when we used to have the, well, we had a buzz saw and whatnot, uh, is actually in that logging museum in Newberry. Yeah, the, the one in, in Grayling, of course, I lived downstate at the time um, when I we used to camp and we used to camp at Hardwick Pines quite a bit. Um, they had a, a, a saw there, the steam driven saw big building with that whole aspect, too. Um, it's been quite a few years since I saw it, but it was pretty impressive, but it looked exceedingly dangerous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. So you say Tyler and Newberry, there is one? Yeah, yeah, there's a, it's a fairly good size, you know, a couple, bu- I don't remember, two or three buildings and some things outside. Yeah, when I went, I went many years ago, but what amazed me was I got there and there was a woman at the counter and she said, this is my grandson. He was like maybe 11. And he was my tour guide. And I could not believe how much information about locking this kid knew. It was amazing <laughs> to me. I'll have to check it out. It's good to know. Thank you. Any other comments or questions for Terry? All right. I think we're all wound down. <laughs> yeah, but it, really, um, it's, it's an exciting book. And I'm hoping to share it with um, some some younger people that I know as well. I really liked it. And I, I think that um, it's just great that you wrote it. <laughs> well, I appreciate everybody coming and listening and letting me uh, talk about it. I really enjoyed writing it. And um, yeah, if anybody's interested in a copy of that, you know, I definitely would give you a, a fellow writer's discount. <laughs> All right. That's good. Can you make certain that we have your contact information, please? Um, well, you know what we'll do is, Terry, if um, I was going to send you an email tomorrow morning because I have to get your um, shipping or what do you call it? Uh, physical address so we can send you your check. And then I, if you don't mind, I could pass that on in the email 
to people to uh, if they wanted to contact you about getting copies of the book? Sure, that'd be fine. That'd be oh, great. That sounds Thank cool. you. Wait, wait, any more questions? No. No more questions. Okay. Or, or if people have more questions, yeah. that what you're or if people have more questions, they can contact you. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. And don't forget, next month we start our year four lineup with, and she was on for a little while, Phyllis, and then we kind of lost her. So um Phyllis Michael Wong's book, We Kept Our Towns Going. And I will send everybody tomorrow all the information about year four and Terry's address. And thank you all. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.